Hello and welcome to the Grin podcast. I am Indul Singh Gupta. Today joining me from Switzerland is a very special guest. His name is Acharya Vidya Bhaskar. He's a Swiss Hindu. He's a teacher of meditation, yoga, the scriptures, Hindu scriptures and also part of the governing council of the Hindus of Switzerland. Acharya Vidya Bhaskar, welcome to the show. Thank you Hindul ji. Namaskar. Thank you very much for joining us and the topic that we want to discuss with you today Acharya Vidya Bhaskar ji is um, you will notice for people who are listening from outside India you would notice that both Acharya Vidya Bhaskar and I are using when we refer to one another the honorific ji that's really an honorific used in India to pay respect and therefore he's calling me Hindul ji and I'm calling him Acharya Vidya Bhaskar ji we want to discuss with Acharya Vidya Bhaskar ji today a very important issue and a very enlightening issue should i say we want to discuss the importance of the bhagavad gita in the world the bhagavad gita as many people might know is the seminal and perhaps the most popularly known of hindu scriptures and texts it is of course part of the great hindu epic the mahabharat and it is of course in the form of a sermon given by the great charioteer avatar krishna to the great warrior arjun on the battlefield of kurukshetra which is the apocalyptic war in a sense that happens in the mahabharat now the gita has influenced uh, people across time everyone from mahatma gandhi to barack obama to to anyone else you can think of people have consistently quoted from the gita but we want to listen to what acharya vidyabhaskar ji has to say today on how he sees the gita evolve its role in a sense in the world today and in the time to come so i want to begin acharya vidyabhaskar ji by asking you should the gita be considered today a global text a book of living in a sense of everyday philosophy pertinent not only to the hindus and the indians but to every society and if yes why so from my point of view hinduji the the gita was originally a, a relatively isolated text um, with extreme profundity which was studied by uh, monastics and of course also um very particular communities in ancient india um for the uplifting of their own spiritual wisdom for deepening their own um what we call sadhana in sanskrit which means um, which we could translate it as the means of spiritual practice and then with time what happened is uh, great scholars great masters in ancient india began to write commentaries on this work and thus the work became more accessible to the what we today call the wider public so it became a standard work to be studied by 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 each and all but in the gita itself we can still find the elements of that isolated text so for example in the 18th chapter which is the last chapter um shri krishna the the narrator 
says that this text should never be narrated to someone who doesn't perform spiritual austerities. So perhaps we could say meditation, who is not devoted and also not to someone who has no desire to learn or to someone who has no respect. So what is interesting about this is that none of us today can claim to really be performing actual spiritual austerities. What the ancients meant by this was what we see in, 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 in films today, um, the yogis, um, spiritual practitioners in the Himalayas, in the mountains, in the snow, uh, like in Tibet, uh, they still have that, who are sitting in the snow and meditating on, on reality, what is the truth of everything. We don't have that today anymore. Of course, some people are still doing that, but it's very rare. I can't claim to be doing that. And yet, I'm, I'm teaching this text. So, so do you see, there is this tension between what is really required to study this text and benefit from it, and then on the other hand, the popularity of the text, which is, of course, across the globe. There is a tension there, and I believe that, that this tension needs to be addressed. So, does the Gita require perfection from the outset? Do we all need to be perfectly um, spiritual practitioners? No. The Gita itself says that just a little of this dharma, of this truth, of this, of this practice, of this law almost, we could say, just a little of this dharma protects from great fear. So I take this to, as a license that we don't have to be perfect spiritual practitioners in order to study the Gita, but there should be a little of it present. So the question is then, does the world, the global society, as you've said, does it have a little of this precondition? And today, I am very positive about it. I would have been less positive 40 years ago, but today, look at the incredible success of apps like Headspace, mindfulness movements, meditation centers, yoga centers. Today, the world abounds in meditators and practitioners of mindfulness. So I think it is fair to say that today, the world is indeed ready for a text like the Gita. Fascinating. I also want to ask you, there is another thing, of course, why the Gita or another reason why the Gita is so very relevant or at least seems so very relevant to me. One, of course, you mentioned that we really live in a world of practitioners much more than perhaps a few decades ago. But we also live in a world, once again, of extreme conflict or at least the sense of extreme conflict which seems to have entered our very hearts and minds and of course we certainly carry conflict in the mobile phones that we carry around now at its heart the Gita it seems to me is concerned with an idea that is extremely pertinent to us today it asks us or it tries to explain to us perhaps what is the nature of this word called choice? How do we choose what we choose? What meaning does the act of choice have in our life? And how should we consider really the Gita's message about this word choice? Because of course, and of course you could narrate this much better than I could, but really the, the sermon of the Gita uh, is read by Lord Krishna to the warrior Arjun 
um when arjun is really saying that how can i go into battle with my own kith and kin my own family my cousins who stand on the other side and and there begins in a sense the message of the gita so this idea of choice and difficult choices seem to be at the very heart of the gita and that seems to be a, a lesson or a message that is so very pertinent to us i'm wondering what you think about this it's a very good question um i believe the gita takes the worst possible dilemma as the best possible example so what you've described this this battle scene where where arjuna asks shri krishna to take him into the center between the two armies is very important he is not on the side of the good only he says take me into the center of both armies so that i may see both clearly so if you if you are a practitioner of meditation you will know that in order to gain clarity we have to rise above the good and the negative within within ourselves and in fact many great commentators such as the kashmiri commentator abhinava gupta have taken the route of interpreting the gita as an inner conflict which is fascinating um but of course i i i don't say that is the only meaning it, it can also refer to the outer conflict so we can only gain mental clarity uh, a pristine sense of awareness if we are in the middle between the good and the bad between the positive and the negative if we take a position if we hold on to the positive we can never have clarity about what is truly negative and what is truly positive so i think that is the the first step that we have to uh, point out and then this dilemma that you have described if we can remain wise mentally clear and truly compassionate and well meaning towards all in such an apocalyptic situation then life will be a breeze if we can do it there then everything else has to be much much easier than dealing with our boss or dealing with our parents or with our with our family members with our society members in a peaceful situation must be much easier so i think the gita sets the bar really high it it's it's like a skillful means to make us understand that we can attain mental stability and we can radiate compassion even in the most difficult of situations the central teaching of the gita is ahimsa ahimsa means non injury and maitri which means unconditional friendliness towards all beings even in the heat of battle so i think it's it's, it's a tremendous challenge can can i get go into a conflict suppose suppose i have a rival i have some some kind of enmity or enemy can i go into that situation wishing that person or those people well in the fullest sense of the term really wishing them well sarvabhuta hitirata in sanskrit which means completely immersed in the well-being of all beings can i do that while also having clarity 
about the enmity that is going on, about the the unrighteousness that is going on, about the the the, the evil actions that are there on the other side, or the evil intentions. And can I then best solve the conflict for the benefit of all? That is the that is the teaching of the Gita, and it's it's, it's a tremendously subtle and profound teaching. And it can only be understood by really studying it and practicing it. I want to now come to another point which you briefly referred to in your last answer. That not only is the Gita, as you mentioned, Abhinavagupta has considered it an internal, the great philosopher, Kashmiri philosopher Abhinavagupta has considered it an internal struggle or an internal battle. But of course, the Gita is also an external battle, at least in the form of the story that it appears. It's an external battle. And that too is extremely pertinent to us once again in a world that is fast changing, in a world where the balance of power is fast changing. Uh, It is also, in a sense, a conversation about an external battle. And I wonder whether when you consider it from the lens of an external struggle, how do you see it? I think we cannot separate the two because the Gita abounds in verses, a total of 700 verses, and we could say at least 650 of them are about how to cultivate our minds through meditative practice. So let me perhaps quickly describe the the, the view um, that the Gita subscribes to. The Gita's view, Sri Krishna's view is that as long as we are driven by afflicting emotions, such as vanity, greed, irritation, revenge, rivalry, pride, emotions, we could say, that that take us away from pure awareness, that as long as we are driven by these, we will never be free. We will always end up in trouble, dukkha, dissatisfaction, suffering, we could also translate the word as. This is the view presented in the Gita, that as long as we are driven by these emotions, as long as we let them reign our lives and minds, the the duality of these emotions, the word in Sanskrit is dvandva, that the the good and the bad, the, the hot and the cold, the pleasurable and the painful, as long as this is what we are ruled by, we can never have peace. We can never have neishtiki shanti. Neishtiki shanti means means an enduring peace within ourselves and externally. So the external battle cannot be solved without the internal. We have to find enduring mental peace and stability within in order to actually have it without. So we cannot separate the two. And I believe modern psychology is is going towards this, is going in this direction when positive psychology affirms that in conflicting situations, the first thing we should do is look at our own inner state. If our inner state is a state of irritation, nervosity, turmoil, then we cannot hope to really solve the external conflict. So I, I really think we have to look at it as an as a reciprocal 
relationship between the outer and the inner. The ancient Greeks said, as within, so without, as above, so below. So I think that's really the message here. And we can't, um, we can't just look at external conflicts. And of course, if you want to take this onto a geopolitical stage, I, I think the world will always remain in conflict unless people begin to look at their emotions, unless we begin to see what is the root cause of those conflicts. The emotion that I want to be right, I want to have power, I want to be safe, not the other. I also want to talk to you a little bit about Mahatma Gandhi's relationship with the Gita. This, of course, has been, you know, is is frequently spoken about. Gandhi himself spoke about it extremely frequently, calling the Gita again and again really the source of, you know, his his really his sense of life. Um, and Mahatma Gandhi, of course, is renowned around the world as the apostle of peace and non-violence. And he claimed he got so much of that from the Gita. And I wonder how you see Mahatma Gandhi's relationship, often known as the greatest, in, the greatest not only Indian, but perhaps the greatest person who lived in the, 20, in the 20th century, uh, and his relationship with this book, the Gita. Well, yes, I mean, you're, you're right. Um, in terms of the greatness and tongue-in-cheek, if I may say, um, a single man brought down the British Empire. In, <laughs> I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek, tongue-in-cheek, sure, of course. No, of course, yes. But in, in some way, it is true. So it's fascinating. And, and he did it without uh, harming anyone in, in, the, in the sense of personally... Um, uh, as attacking said, anyone or killing attacking anyone. Attacking anyone, killing anyone. So it is indeed fascinating. Uh, but coming to the question... Um, there are, of course, different views about this. Um, there is a famous quote um, in which Gandhiji says that when doubts haunted him, when he was faced with disappointments, when he, he couldn't, when he didn't have any hope left, he turned to the Gita and always found a verse to comfort him that would bring a smile onto his face and then he advised people to, to meditate on the Gita, to derive fresh joy and new meanings from it every day. So this is the, the, the famous quote. Um, I think the point about doubt is most relevant because Sri Krishna says that samshayatma vinashyati, which means that a person for whom doubt has become their very nature perishes. If, if we live based upon doubt, then life is no longer whole. It is fragmented. If, just if we observe the feeling of doubt, what it does to us in our body, in our, in our emotions, in our mind, in our awareness, if we just observe that, it's, it's, it's actually not a very nice feeling. And it's not... It's not a feeling from which we can act with clarity or, or a sense of, of relief, auspiciousness, what, what, what is really needed to, to go forward in life in, when we make decisions, when we take uh, important steps. So if we can use the Gita, the Gita to resolve this state of doubt that, that we are very often in, 
then I think it's very precious. And that's what Gandhiji re referred to. Uh, in this context, if I may, um, there's also another great, great thinker in ancient times, about 1,200 years ago, by the name of Shankaracharya, who happened to be the first commentator on the Gita. And in one of his great works, he says this, one is oneself. What doubt can a person have in this truth? If even here a doubt persists, then you are he who is the doubter. In other words, when we are in a severe state of doubt, we need to refer back to our own consciousness and just watch those doubts in a relaxed way and then ask the question, who am I? Who is the doubter? And this is precisely the essence of the Gita. Who am I? Who is the doubter? Who is the questioner? Who is it that is viewing this, this scene of my thoughts arising and ceasing of my feelings coming and going, all of them impermanent, anitya, in the words of Krishna, all of them impermanent. Who am I? So when we do this practice, it's a brilliant method to overcome doubt. And I think that is what Gandhiji saw in the Gita. As we come to the end of this conversation, let me end by asking you a question about the relevance of the Gita uh, in a world which is fraught in a sense with technological tension and its relevance in the world to come which might be completely unrecognizable from today due to even further technological change. So if you could talk a little bit about you know, your ideas of whether the Gita's message will indeed be eternal Right. Well, the answer is very simple. Yes, it is an eternal message because what it ultimately refers to is in some sense eternal. Consciousness will always be there in this universe. Without consciousness, no technology can be produced. So unless, of course, we say the whole universe will be will be um, eradicated by by a big crunch or something like that, then of course we can we can say maybe consciousness will no longer be there, but that's a different discussion. But of course, as long as technology is being produced, there is someone producing it, and that someone lives and breathes because of consciousness. So even a, a thousand years from now, when when your children, my children and their grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren, when they've traveled to the stars, maybe, then it will be consciousness that is in their bodies experiencing those stars, those other worlds, if technology ever reaches to such a level. So, the Gita's message is to understand consciousness, to realize the nature of consciousness, which is the only true light of our own experience. That's the only thing I can't deny, ultimately. I can deny everything. I can have a doubt and be skeptical about everything. But I can't doubt that it's consciousness that it's doubting. So that consciousness has a nature. It has, it has, it is, it's not just a, 
a nothing. It has a nature. And if we look into consciousness, if we explore consciousness through introspection, then ultimately we're meditating. And then we see like all the meditators throughout all the past millennia have seen, we see that consciousness is simply peace and silence. Everyone can experience that for themselves. Lastly, no being wishes to suffer. Even a thousand years from now, when perhaps humans will have reached physical immortality or people might become 500 years old because of technology, we don't know. But even then, nobody will want to suffer. So the Gita addresses the question of suffering. What, what's the cause of suffering? The cause of suffering is in the mind. The root of suffering is in the mind. So the only way to overcome that is to look at the mind. So I think that that will be the case in 500 years as well. And technology is not going to make that easier. On the contrary, now that everyone is obsessed with their iPhones, including myself, now that everyone is obsessed with, with, with social media and is no longer looking at the mind, is no longer walking in nature, is no longer breathing pure fresh air, is no longer looking at the sky, I don't think suffering is going to get easier. So the message will become all the, all the more relevant in the future. On that wonderful note, thank you very much, Acharya Vidya Bhaskarji, for joining us from Switzerland. Thanks very much for your time and this really enlightening conversation about the eternal relevance of the Gita in our lives. Thank you for your time. Thank you. This is the Grin Podcast. You were listening to Hindols and Gupta. Until next time, goodbye.